0: Tonight on the Marshall Pro Podcast, we have the one and only episode, The Week in IndyCar, listener Q&A, Thanksgiving week here in America. Know that outside of the delightful continental 48 states, we do indeed have listeners north of the border and south across oceans all over here. This is a week where, uh, mid-day Wednesday... We beg off and don't do a whole bunch and get into the whole Thanksgiving thing, which we're not going to get into uh, for Thanksgiving, whether it's right, wrong, or other. Uh, We're just going to say that appreciate you, and by we, I mean me, appreciate you, everything that you do for my wife and I, all the uh, great fun and questions that we get to uh, charge through each week. Some of them make me pick my little brain and try and remember stuff. Sometimes I have to reach out to friends and in IndyCar to get quality answers instead of the crap that I normally offer. And some of them, you know, they're just kind of fun and silly. So appreciate you all. Hope that this much later than expected episode Going up here Wednesday night, I hope, I don't know, uh, ahead of Thursday, Thanksgiving, where zero people will listen to it. Uh, I hope it does something. I don't know if it's good, but uh, we're going to do it here. Uh, what am I going to tell you before we get rolling with your questions beyond thanking the awesome folks at com, for example? Bell Racing Helmets USA, another fine example, the Justice Brothers i uh, love me some Justice Brothers and Cooper Tires. They fill my heart. They fill my heart. Um, so we've got a couple things that I'm chasing here in terms of IndyCar. Uh, but because it is a holiday week here in the States, meh. Called one or two folks today, but held off on calling some others on my list. Probably do that Monday. Um, heard some interesting things, y'all. And... Some of them are single source only, which in the world of reporting and whatnot, you need two sources at least before you really go with something. So still chasing one or two others. Called a person from one team thinking that they might be able to confirm. Uh, They sent me to voicemail after two rings, I think. Uh, Called another person from that same team. Actually called them twice First time, uh, I think, sent me to voicemail after maybe three rings and called again. To, and they normally call back. Didn't. It's a pretty good indicator that they they know why I'm calling and don't want to talk. Called back again today. Rang however many times, four or five times. Went to voicemail. And you know what I did? It, it's a little bit of attitude, but it amuses me. Uh, I let it go to voicemail, and the minute that it said to record, I let it basically record for a second and then hung up. So the person who's dodging me can have a little bit of their time being wasted as well so that they see that there's a voicemail and maybe go and listen to it and find out there's nothing there. It's a little passive-aggressive, isn't it? Eh, It is. Hey, it's holiday times. I'm a little bit of a relaxed mood no alcohol. I was thinking of of cracking open a beer, but I don't think I'm going to be able to get very far tonight uh, before it's time to stop, have dinner with my wife, and then probably resume later on. So we'll see where we are at on the imbibing and fun uh, standpoint. Last thing here, thanks to many IndyCar drivers, basically half the field, who were so kind to send in Some videos of love and encouragement and support for our friend and listener, Lynn Henderson-Gale, who lost her husband, Jim, about two weeks ago uh, due to COVID. So really, really happy with just amazing response from so many drivers. Uh, Team owner and Michael Shank, Kara Adams from Firestone, uh, Mike Hull from the uh, Ganassi team and such. So, just really cool, really appreciative of them. And just honestly, it's who they are. That's one of the great things that makes IndyCar so unique. It's why I dedicate so much uh, time of my life to this series, among the other reasons. But the people there, uh, the people who make the show, they are high quality human beings. So, I'll spare you the the story of those that I reached out to who didn't respond and then upon sending second requests also didn't bother responding to those. It's fine, it's their choice. Um but I'll tell you, by and large, the vast majority of the folks in the IndyCar series really do care. And uh I hope that their gesture for Lynn is one that helps here during the holidays. Alright, a little bit of music bed for you. And it's time to get rolling with your questions. Where do we go first? Where do we go first? In the list compiled by our friend, Tim Falkowitz. We're going to Tony Kanon. This is from our pal, Ross Porter. Opening the show, Ross. Thank you, brother. Marshall, hearing of Tony Kanon running ovals for Ganassi next year was great news. The fact that he has run with the team in the past combined with the uh, CGR cars looking very sharp in the ovals last year puts my expectations pretty high for a TK rebound this year. This is your thoughts. Uh, side note, you always seem to be drinking coffee on the podcast. You caught me. Uh, what is your go-to roast of choice? And then you say something nice, Ross, and it's Thanksgiving. So I appreciate that. And you said, thanks for all you do for the sport we love. Uh, it's much more than just a podcast. It's weekly therapy. Oh, no, that's fun. Now I get to mess with your brains a bit. Um, well, let's answer the last one first quickly. I wish I had some great, like, oh, here's this exotic thing or some locally. No, it's Starbucks espresso roast. Been drinking it for 10, 12, 15 years. I don't know, however long. And yeah, it's kind of that thing that just works. And there are others that I know and I'm sure are better. And I'm open to y'all saying you really should try this or that. Uh, But this is one of those, it's the reliable thing. It's, it is It is not getting me there to the finish line first, but I know I'm going to get there no matter what. So old, reliable. Uh, I'm really happy for Tony to know that he is going to a team that is capable of giving him a winning car. That was not the case at Foyt. It's not speaking negative of Foyt. It's just a reality. Um, the quality of the car should be consistently good. Uh, enough for him to feature. Will Tony be someone that is knocking teammate Scott Dixon, uh Penske's, Joseph Newgarden, Simon Pagano, Will Power, Andretti's, Colton Herta, Rossi, Hunter Ray, Graham Rahal, Takuma Sato? Will he be knocking all of them off uh, to get to the finish line first? I don't know, but I think that would be uh, a success that speaks highly of the team and Tony coming together. I don't know if I would put him in that position, though, just automatically, and that's because when he was last at Ganassi, we didn't really see a Tony Canon who was capable of challenging the team leader. I uh, know that he had that one-race win, and we could come up with a lot of answers as for why there were differences, disparities, and so on, Ross. But even if it was a year where the Ganassi team wasn't great, more often than not, Scott Dixon was the leading car on track with Tony in pursuit somewhere, not often directly on his gearbox. So do I think Tony can still perform? Absolutely. Absolutely. Do I think he strikes fear in folks the same way that he once did? No, but that's okay. That's not uncommon for someone at the, what should be the final, final farewell tour stage of his career. Last little note to throw in while at Laguna Seca, and I think at Barber as well with Jimmy's number 48 Honda, Uh, Chris Simmons, a.k.a. Pushy Loose, good friend of ours. uh, Dario Franchitti's championship winning, Indy 500 winning engineer. Dixie's uh, championship winning engineer who moved over to, moved up, I should say, to an overarching performance director role in 2020. Uh, He was doing the engineering for Jimmy. uh, Was told that this is a testing and development role for uh, Pushy Loose there. Um, not necessarily a preview of who will be on that timing stand full time next year. Who knows? Could he possibly, uh, he worked with Tony. He was with Tony before moving over to Dixie when Eric Bretzman left, I think, uh, at the end of 2014, maybe. So he's worked with Tony, uh, directly that win that Tony got with the team, I believe is with, uh, Simmons on the timing stand. So there's, we know that there's good stuff there just don't know who the race engineer full-time person will be on the 48. So that's the only thing for us to keep in mind. Uh, We would assume, rightfully, that it will be a high-quality person. Ganassi's not known for putting jokers in that role, but until we know who will be Jimmy slash Tony's full-season engineer, that might be the thing that keeps me from making a real hard call on what we should expect. Stay on Tony here to open the show as we normally do for those who are listening for the first time. We tend to pick a topic that's a little bit deeper than others. Might deserve a little bit more uh, introspection, investigation in something, not inbreeding. We're going to go to our pal Jordan Darwin. Says MP. Now that Tony Kanan has moved to Ganassi, have you talked to him about how he views his time with Foyt? Uh, it says I know he wanted to turn the program around, and I doubt it is where he wanted to leave it. Uh, it. Says still hashtag me personally, the official hashtag of our show. I think he did a lot to help bridge a difficult time in their existence. I would love in your take, would love your take on it too. And happy holidays to you and Mrs. Pruitt. It says we keep praying for her and I'm encouraged by her progress. Uh, we'll just add here that uh, hoping to find some time over the weekend. Maybe early next week to post a update on uh, how things are going here on the home front uh one that's a little bit deeper, so thank you for that uh, Her progress has been pretty amazing um, hmm hard to uh hard to throw a lot at this, Jordan, knowing that it was a relatively brief relationship, right um if we look at what tony had two full seasons and then the partial this year uh they didn't make much headway while they were together in 2018 2019 right just admittedly uh the team didn't go very far we know as i wrote last year at the end of the year we found out that there was some there was a pretty big error in their uh, shaker rig program that invalidated, or I shouldn't say invalidated, that just led them down the wrong path with wrong conclusions, um, basically wasted, uh, a lot of their, uh, wasted a lot of their good money, and the car, there's a total misread on what worked and what didn't work, and therefore the cars were pretty darn slow, uh, more often than not. Not always, but more often than not. So I wish I could say that there was a linear arc that we could follow. Linear arc? That's funny. Um, a linear progression from one year to the next where we could say, aha, there's no real massive variables to throw in during those two full-time seasons. And we saw something. Yeah, you know, honestly, the team didn't do a whole ton That was very remarkable. Had a couple things here, there, right? Mateus Laced shined rare occasion, but he broke through on occasion. Tony, same thing. But mm, uh, we know that with their change in uh, engineering on the 14 car, with Mike Oliver coming in this year, uh, the other Mike, uh, Mike Pawlowski coming in as well, we know that here in 2020, there's an engineering shakeup. And we know that with Sebastian in the car, Sebastian Borde, our beloved French fry, uh, there was some real real reason for optimism, but you know, uh, I don't know if I would slot Tony into a role uh, or the team into a place where his true value and benefits were reaped. Uh, they weren't in a position to really return whatever he brought. And I don't know if he found the things that he needed to make the most of, if that's the right way to describe it. So, yeah. Um, bit of a, a prolonged pit stop here. That, that didn't seem to uh, do a whole bunch. You know, the the thing about the, the move back to Ganassi, and this is just coming back to uh, Ross's note here a little bit. Um, yeah, I mean, they're there was not uh there was not always a ton of love by the end of that relationship um one or one or two figures within the team who maybe um were not you know this is not a relationship that ended with everyone everyone giving lots of hugs and high fives and tears i'm not saying it was bad and it was a happy get the heck out of here both let's split and this is a welcome divorce not saying that by any means but i do know that in the post ganassi years um you know there's there's a little bit of lingering stuff where you go okay you know uh i i'm struggling to see how this could ever come back together really happy to see that with jimmy as the bridge uh and with ntt data really wanting tony back um We have an opportunity to hopefully close the chapter properly for him with the team. Uh, This is what I think they said, a multi-year deal. So in theory, he'll be doing this for the next two years, we think, on the ovals. Um, I think there is real potential for some good stuff to happen here and for Tony to go out in the way that he wanted to this year but didn't. And I think this is going to be the needed positive development for him to feel satisfied when he ultimately hangs up his helmet. If this opportunity did not come along, I would have been saddened, very saddened for him, knowing that for a guy who loves racing so much and has done so much for the sport, uh right, if not the one of the top two or three most popular drivers, pretty much forever, right, this guy's been a a real source of spark and fuel and explosion for fans for a long time, had a lot of wins, a lot of success you know uh a j foyt who he drove for boy his his success was amazing, but then you look at the last fair amount in his career and It really wasn't there. And when he retired, it was a long time past when he had really enjoyed standing on a podium, a win, and being heralded for what made him special as an active race car driver. Not the legend who did stuff in the past, but today we see that, and you're delivering it and able to deliver it. That wasn't AJ's exit from the sport. And I just was really hoping that Tony was not going to follow in that same direction, just not having an opportunity to be in a front running potential car and deliver the performances we expect. So I'm excited, Ross. Excited, Jordan. Can't wait to find out who's going to engineer the old hot rod. And yeah, this is going to be cool. I can't tell you if they're going to win anything between himself and good old Mr. Johnson, but I can tell you it's going to be cool stories and their energy whatever you think like the young rookies just the tail wagon and they're uh they're just this the, the super battery source powering the whole series with their enthusiasm i think we're going to learn a thing or two about a couple of guys in their mid 40s who probably are the happiest ones in the series uh Robbie Bergren says, Marshall, after reading your most recent article about NTT data cutting back on sponsorship, how likely are we to see a new title sponsor? Well, I don't know, Robbie. Uh, the fact that they announced that they're continuing their sponsorships tells me that they're still here. Uh, a little bit tongue-in-cheek there, but as I read the release, and I can't, tell you if my suspicions are correct or not. But as the words were presented, it seemed like or felt like there was an option for them to not return. And yet they did and have. So even though, as we've been saying on the show for a while now, we pretty strongly suspected the 10 car, the uh, Felix Rosenquist prior to that, Ed Jones prior to that, Tony Cannon. Uh, what part of that, uh, Ryan Briscoe carrying the full season primary sponsorship from NTT data. I think maybe with exception of what one or two races here, there from monster energy or something like that, that this was going to be stepping back somehow, maybe gone, who knows, uh, glad to see that they aren't gone, but you know, what are they going to do? Half ish of the races, maybe. 8,500 included. So that's a big one worth, you know, it feels like that's worth a couple of races of uh, sponsorship. So going to be back there, going to be part of Tony's deal and Jimmy's deal on the 48 car going to continue as an associate on Scott Dixon's car and, uh, NTT, uh, the parent company. Uh, I sometimes forget these things that NTT data is a subdivision of NTT. um, where NTT Data is the sponsor on the uh, in the Ganassi family, NTT, the parent company, is the sponsor of the series. So will they want or need something different next year? Would NTT change its mind? I can't tell you. I uh, would have to say, what does the world look like? What do finances look like? And so on. Uh, I also don't know the length of these deals. One year, two year. Again, believe it or not, they don't tell me when I ask. So It's a good question. Um, Only little angle I can offer here that might be a wee bit uh, different than what you read in the story or wasn't in the story was, hey, there's a new team owner. I'm sorry, new series owner. There's someone who owns the whole party now who's different than uh, the folks who owned it when NTT signed on to be the title sponsor of the the NTT IndyCar series. Would RP, could RP that being Roger Penske, uh, look to other potential sponsors that might, who knows, offer more money, be able to do bigger national activation with ad campaigns and whatever else in a way that NTT, due to their comparative smallish size, um, might not be able to do? I don't know. Would Roger be looking at what is best for the series first compared to being loyal to a sponsor that i'm sure he's happy to have back but was not his signing and his you know a legacy inclusion in the series i always assume roger's going to do what's best for his business and that is often a very cold and calculated thing so cold and calculated doesn't have to be bad unless you're a serial serial killer of course so That's the thing that I will be curious to try and learn more about, Robbie. Could RP be trying to hook, name whatever it might be that is going to bring a bigger spotlight to the series than its current sponsor might offer? Don't know. Um, We'll find out. I do know that I'm thankful for NTT, though. Uh, It's really cool when you have a company who we really didn't know before might not be able to fully define exactly what they do, (laughs) but they love us and they want to support us collectively and do that in the team level and the series level as well. Uh, you know, as a guy who's worked in the, uh, Pet Boys Indie Racing League, the Northern Lights Indie Racing League, uh, the, I don't even remember what all variety of series, um, you know, uh, there have been a number of title sponsors where you go okay I, I either know what you are, but all right, or I'm not sure what you are, but I appreciate it uh so I guess that's where my head's at uh plus Margot Cook, who uh looks after the uh sponsorship stuff uh on the entity data side at least uh she seems to be pretty darn awesome and a massive fan of IndyCar, so I don't think any of these things are coincidences, Robbie. Where you have them coming back, even if it's in a reduced role on the car they've been primary with, they're coming back. That, my friend, I would say. I think we had a thing here from somewhere, someone, something about uh, some rumors of late. Uh, I can clear those, those up quickly. Oliver, ask you Ray and Lanigan Racing third car sponsored by High V. No nonsense, made up. Whomever started that rumor don't uh there's another one about max chilton being gone from carlin racing you know who is the financial engine of carlin racing his father so no Uh, his billionaire father uh yeah hasn't dropped his own son question from fraggle on twitter how about ernie francis jr in an indycar that being young Trans Am star, Trans Am champion, Ernie Francis Jr. I mean, I love the idea. Uh, He's aligned with Ford, kind of, sort of, sort of, kind of. They aren't in IndyCar uh, yet, unfortunately. So uh, we don't often see rival manufacturers trying to develop the guy who's working with a rival manufacturer in a totally different series. So I'd love to see it because I don't know how good he is if he's open-wheel car level, I mean, he'd certainly need a lot of laps and a lot of training, so that's not a question. But could he get there? Possibly. Um, love the idea. just don't see how it could work. Um, just coming back to the Callum question, the Jack Aiken question, the, yeah, the other issue here, which I, I failed to mention, okay, is the amount of money IndyCar teams are wanting that I keep hearing about. It's a little bit rich for some of the talented European Formula 2 up-and-comers to match. So skip the whole oval racing, never done it before, heard it's dangerous. Some of the things where you go, well, that's the reason why they're not. If either the financial asks were lower and or some of these top-tier kids just had more and could spend it, I think we would be talking about some of the uh remaining vacancies being filled uh or how you know heavy negotiations taking place right now uh with an eye towards concluding something if no f1 offer comes along because of that disparity the financial ask versus the financial uh ability yeah um we're not probably not going to see Uh, the Nick DeVries of the world, who should be in F1 and potentially winning races. Um, I think we're going to hear about more of those situations of heading to sports cars or something somewhere else where young talent can be uh, put to good use and paid a little bit of money. Uh, Paul Trahan, hey, Paul. MP, you say, with an exclamation point. Now that you have an LED panel, what are your plans for it? Well, I should mention, for those who didn't see, I posted a little photo that a a very, very dear friend who's been in on the joke about how while IndyCar had their LED panels and seemingly that there were lots of problems after they went away from the first-generation ones that came online in, what, 2015? Um, Ran for, what, two years, maybe? Whatever it was, before they went to the new second-generation and third-generation uh, anytime I wrote about those stupid things, even if it was just a little 150 word update, uh, Indy cars decided to take them off the cars for the next three races while they f- try and figure out something. That story, which would take me five minutes to write, and it'd be so short, dumb, and meaningless that I would forget I'd written it uh, within minutes. Those stupid stories when we would get when we would get the end of month story reports of. Here's the top 10 overall stories in terms of uh, traffic, how many page views and whatnot. And then here it is broken down by racing series, the top 10 IndyCar, F1, NASCAR, IMSA, so on. A stupidest, smallest LED panel story would usually be top of the list in IndyCar. So, And then sometimes at the top or near the top of everything for the entire month. Just made no sense to us. And it also bemused the living heck out of us, too, because Robin and I, two primary IndyCar reporters, would just laugh and go, I mean, how many hours does he put into each mailbag? It's a phenomenal amount of time every week. He writes some amazing historical piece about whatever. I put in a ton of time and effort and research and interviews on some other long, introspective analysis. What?" nothing (laughs) It just gets its ass kicked by a stupid nothing led panel story so a friend of mine uh, who is very very in on the joke and loved it and just found it to be hilarious um apparently made a beautiful little present for me and so uh i have a gift now of an led panel encased in uh, glass or I think plastic, um, all wired up. And so I can plug it in and have my own functioning IndyCar led panel. And funnily enough, it's the first generation one that never really failed. That was okay. So that's even funnier. Uh, so I didn't even get the ones that were the freaking all time traffic, uh, web traffic stars at racer.com. Um, and so Paul says, what do you, now that I have, it, what am I going to do with it? Display it. Use it as a Christmas tree ornament. This is hashtag me personally. I would put a chain on it and wear it like a flavor flave clock. So yes to the flavor flave clock. Uh, that is brilliant. Um, I might have to walk around with some sort of little um, battery pack, uh, you know, rechargeable battery pack, so I can plug because it actually plugs into the wall. Um, yeah. So my only concern with it, Paul is and i guarantee the wiring job and everything done to it was fine but just knowing the general history of the led panels blinking out cracking out failing and whatever i truly am not willing to turn it on unless i'm in the room uh with it and i'm as in will i walk away for 10 minutes and go to no uh, unplug it i just don't trust it and it's again nothing to do with who put it together they're just a little bit of history here. Um, I don't want fire, I guess. Fire, bad, says me. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know, but I do like the Flavor Flav Clock. That is something. There might there might need, need to be some photos taken with this thing hanging from my neck. So I love that. Uh, we are, where are we going next? Well, we are going to our man, Bob Gravel. says, so some sports have their minor leagues or women's leagues run in different seasons than their primary league. Do you think that is something that IndyCar could move uh, towards to help raise the status of Indy Lights and showcase good drivers to IndyCar and the fans? Uh, with regards to the W Series, do you think a driver would go straight from there to IndyCar, or would they need a season of Indy Lights first? Some great questions here, Bob. Uh, f- huh. Here's a thing, and I know this to be true because I was told it by a number of people uh, in the Indy Lights paddock, and it was, hey, this new schedule for next year doesn't have the Freedom 100 on it. We do not compete as part of the Indianapolis 500 schedule, as we have for many, many years, and despite all the reasons and justifications put behind removing indy lights the freedom 100 the series biggest race from the schedule um that's actually hurt us for those of us who have actual sponsors not just a kid whose mom dad or grandparents or whatever are wealthy and can pay for it uh but hey we have actual sponsors who need exposure, want exposure in exchange for giving us money. You just took our version of the Indy 500 off the schedule. Therefore, you have hurt us and our ability to find money to be able to do this. So I've mentioned this, Bob, because the idea of rotating the Indy Lights season to something where they compete on their own uh, and or I guess in theory, again, on their own, not during the IndyCar season and sharing whatever the number uh, changes each year, half or more of the events with IndyCar events. Um, I think that's where we drive a big, big old final nail in the coffin because not as if they didn't, run at some places by that quote themselves this year without IndyCar. Um, and it's not as if that hasn't been part of junior open wheel racing's past. It has been for a long time. But the idea of saying you are not going to be at IndyCar events, you are not going to have any direct link or association. Uh, you're going to be off running but I me. Mean, it might be at the same tracks. Who knows? But just your calendar is spun forward, backwards, whatever. So you play on your own, uh it'd kill the series instantly, Bob. There's a a bit of a, a FaceTime value as well here, and that is for mom and dad, for the sponsors. Being at the IndyCar events, being a part of the big show, even if you're on the undercard, I mean it, it's a powerful thing. Um you know, having your band as the opening act for the headliner. Being able to be at that big concert, see the arena filled, whatever it is, see the big band play, feel connected to it. There's an energy there, and that's an energy that motivates people to stay, to do more, to try and find more sponsors, to get more invested. All those things where being at the big show really is a vastly important thing. Um It's also something where it makes it a lot easier for interested team owners, um, team managers, you name it, to keep track, to talk, to wander over to pit lane and say, yeah, you know, maybe talk to a kid or maybe just observe. But, you know, there aren't a lot of team owners that do that, but there's enough who pay attention. And when you're there and present and part of things, it's a lot easier. Uh, When it's spun around and these guys and gals are racing, Uh, at tracks when you're not there and they're kind of cut from you. I think that would cause real problems, uh, on the W series. As I understand it, uh, the W series car speed wise is Indy pro 2000 ish level. Can't tell you higher, lower, but it is by no means Indy Light's level. Um so yeah, uh could a experienced, highly talented woman succeeding in the W series we would who we would hope or assume might have uh, experience in other open wheel categories that are have been valuable to their learning curve. Could they be an exception? Possibly. It's one of the the tales, sadly, truly sadly, about many uh, women racers. And it's the, hey, I got this far, and then everything came to a grinding halt for no money, no whatever it is. But there are too, too many stories, as I wrote about for Road and Track this week, too many stories of women who get some of the way, a decent amount of the way, and then the bottom falls out. And so in those instances it's very possible to have a a very skilled driver who's succeeding on the W series level and that W series car may or may not be the fastest sharpest thing they've ever competed in, but it's where the opportunity lies, so that's where they're racing. If we're talking that uh maybe I don't know about straight to Indycar, but I mean, look, a season of lights is never going to hurt because unless we're talking about a young American woman who has been to many of the tracks and therefore circuit familiarity isn't an issue, uh, the I think most of the women in the W series are certainly not American. Saber Cook uh, is part of things. We know that Shea Holbrook was part of the first season. Uh, Isla Agrin is going to be part. I mean, she's from Norway, but... Uh, has spent many, many, many years here, competed on the road to Indy. But depending on the case, Bob, I'd say in just about every instance, a year of Indy lights at minimum would be a highly beneficial thing. Um, Struggling to think of any of the women that uh, were true badasses and showcase their talent in the uh, opening season of the W Series, who I'd say, yep, Uh, Jamie Chadwick, you are going right into an IndyCar or Alice Powell or you name it. So, yeah, Um, I got to admit, I would love, Bob, to learn about the W Series expanding to probably two formulas. So it seems like for the car that they have, It's too much for those who lack significant experience, and there's a lot of those young women in the series who've demonstrated significant talent at the karting level, the Formula F, uh, the non-wings winged level, and jumping up to the W Series chassis uh, with wings, with proper slicks, and good power uh it's a big learning learning endeavor so you aren't going to see nor did folks really see uh that talent shine through because holy cow it was a ton to learn i'd say ca- adding to that for some of the sharper women who have already mentioned um eh, i i don't want to say that the cars really pushed them to their limits by any means uh there's a lot of headroom there so part of me wonders If when the series gets to a place where it can do this and afford this, if stepping down to something closer to a USF 2000 type performance level as the first step in the W series, and then a faster version of what they have now that is closer to Indie Lights as the second step, the second stage, uh, I think that would be a pretty phenomenal development, Bob. Because it just does seem like what they have right now, it's either too much or not enough uh, for the vast majority of the women who are coming in. Tons of great stuff to learn. Don't get me wrong, but we're talking fit, right? Uh, kids coming out of Indie Pro 2000 at the top, top couple. When they get in Indy Lights, they're going to tell you, geez, this thing is fast. Whoa, this thing does all kinds of things I've never experienced before, but what I just came out of has me ready. And yeah, I'm maybe not going to light the world on fire in the first couple of races, but by the halfway point of the season, I'm going to be there. Seems like there were too many cases in Season 1, at least, of the W Series where half the field was too far out uh in the education department and uh, the experience department to really get the most out of the cars or show the best of themselves. Uh let's see. JJ Gertler. Hey pal. I wonder if you could break down what we don't see in TV. What happens in the time between races assuming two Sunday main events within a day's drive of the shop what happens each day of the week to get the cars and teams ready for the following event? How does that differ if one of the races is speedway and one is road course? Man, you're really wanting to get uh, stuck into here. Um, I might not go too deep on this right now, JJ, just because uh, I don't know how much more time I'm going to have tonight. So let me, uh, let me, let's do this. Send this one back in, or if you want to wait for the next Mike Hull uh, visit as a guest, uh, this is probably one where he could give you a more minute breakdown and Probably a, a less general uh, answer than I would, uh, because he's someone who is watching, and with uh, the great Barry Wanzer and crew chiefs, and you name it, who are are really working to a very precise timeline, uh, who can answer that more definitively. So that's a suggestion there, and hey, might have just saved a little bit of time. Okay, so I made a note for myself at this point in the good old Word doc. You meant to pull up something that was not included in the Word doc because it came in a day or two after uh, our pal Tim had put this together. Um, Let me find it because it was a great question, and I actually sought a little bit of insight because, you know, uh, I wasn't there this year at the racy track. Um, This comes in from Will Velkoff. Hey, Will says, hey, MP, resending this one in. Um, We'll mention this too, and this is not specifically for you, Will, but uh, it's just a good little note. I try and make a point every Monday morning-ish, if possible, to send out the call for questions for the listener Q&A show. And quite often I end up recording that show Monday night, if not Tuesday. And, of course, here I am doing it Wednesday night, so doesn't always work, but what does work is Tim will go and look through Reddit, Facebook, and Twitter, pull all the questions, assemble them, uh, shuffle them, put them in a great order, hopefully that has some, a nice flow for the show, and it's a massive help. But he does that late Monday afternoon, early Monday evening, and then sends them over. So what that means is, Will, for example, um, I don't recall seeing your question come in in terms of being on the page here in front of me. So it might be a case of having come in Tuesday or whatever it is after. Um, That's the thing uh, I just need to share here because I know you said you're resending it, and I apologize because I don't think I've seen it before. So just a little note that... If you want the best odds of getting your question in and answered Monday by what I would say about 7 p.m. Eastern, uh, four o'clock Pacific. If it's not in by then, it uh, might not get included in the show. So uh, apologize there. Well, you mentioned uh recent podcast subscriber. Well, thank you. Formula F racer. I love you already, Will. Uh, and engineer in the uh, FRP, F-1600, and F-2000 series. Uh, we're getting married, Will. Sorry. Uh, tell your girlfriend, boyfriend, whomever. Uh, we're getting married. Uh, what can you tell us about shock technology in the Delardi W-12 era? It says spool valves, blow-offs, Penske versus Oline's preferences for teams, also happy thanksgiving um so knowing that i have not really been peering under the proverbial hoods this year and i know you asked about the era but i just wanted to make sure that i wasn't totally uh, out of the loop here um i want to get the smartest answers for you and so what i did is i reached out to a friend of mine uh, who may or may not be a brand new championship winning indycar race engineer uh, and he after sharing your question with him through the good old how did i do that what's the what's the way that i did this well by text that's how we do things these day uh, our pal uh, known as mr Bashemi, also known as mr pink uh, just responded with a nice little thing uh, saying hey penske and ganassi manufacture their own dampers most of the other teams use Penske or Orleans, but with a great deal of bespoke internals that are unique to that team. It says regarding blow-offs, spool valves, etc., the answer is that, and all the above, and more are in play. Uh, and that's the part that, in terms of specific ignorance, that's the thing that made me say, eh, I'm going to reach out for some help, because the "and more, I can't tell you what that is. Because, uh, again, you kind of got to be there. And uh, not only, not like dampers are going to be completely wide open for me to walk up and see and go, aha, but uh, face-to-face conversations uh, out behind the, the transporters or over somewhere else, you know, those are where these conversations tend to take place. Just haven't for a little while. Uh, closes by saying, plus inerters, which can be mechanically or hydraulically driven and tuned with clutches or bypasses, etc. So a lot of that has been part and parcel of the DW-12 era, Will. A nerders being the one key thing allowed uh, starting in 2012. Yeah, some of the other goodies here. Thank you to uh, Mr. Pink for helping with that answer. Michael Makowski, you are up next. MP, last week a couple of listeners referred to the podcast as a polished turd. You say with new content... Every week, the podcast is as fresh as can be. And everybody knows you can't polish a fresh turd. This turd of a podcast has been and always shall be unpolished. I don't know how to receive that, Michael. Um, (laughs) Kidding aside, thank you, I think. Yes, uh, you can't polish a fresh turd. That seems like it should be the new marketing slogan for the show. It really does because yeah, uh, it is very unpolished. It's just raw and conversational and dumb. And, uh, eh, it's me. Uh, so thank you for that. Let's see our pal, Tony chef 20 from the Reddit. I was told to send this in again. So I am when IndyCar Did dirt and asphalt oval racing in the late 60s and 70s? Did they use two different types of cars? Adding to that, would car teams build a car specifically for the Indy 500? Um, Well, to my knowledge, if we're talking real dirt racing uh, in the 60s and 70s, we had a bit of an evolution. Uh, so that I'm struggling to think of photos that I've seen, at least, Tony, and that's what I'm having a basis on. Um, I'm not recalling photos of rear-engined uh, open-wheel cars being used on dirt. Uh, asphalt, obviously, Oval Racing, we're using you know, indie cars. Uh would say Sprint Midgets and otherwise would probably have been the uh, the items for the dirt back then. I mean, we know the the roadster and roadsterish type cars certainly competed on dirt. But uh, I apologize for. Uh, I guess I was supposed to <laughs> look this up and and reeducate myself because I'm forgetting a little bit of my history here. So sorry I didn't brief myself on the questions this week, Tony, and come back with something that was really good for you. So uh, I failed. It's unpolished. Um, as for cars specifically for the 500, that was more often the case than not. It's also not as if the cars would not have seen action before Indy would say that everything that I know of prior to my birth in 1970, uh, and then for what I've read afterwards and know on my own, um, this 60s and 70s era in particular, hell, I guess we have to go back even farther than that, but the cars being built for the Indianapolis 500 were, that was it. Best ideas, best hopes, best everything. Did every single one of those truly turn their first laps in competition during practice at the 500? No, but I know for sure that yes, indeed, it was an annual arms race to bring the best, newest, smartest, game-changing type thing to the 500. In some instances, yes, if not many instances that uh, I've read about, you had folks who you know might debut a car at Phoenix or wherever else. It'd have a lot of great stuff on it, but it wouldn't necessarily have all the stuff. And some of the ideas they were really wanting to save that they thought would be of immense value at Indy in the desire to not have it copied. uh, Yeah, there would certainly be things that were reserved for the Indy 500 only. There are also some cases where truly there's a brand new car and it's hitting the track at Indy and it hasn't been seen beforehand and off we go. So, no, it's a a lot of variety of answers to the question here, but uh, hopefully it wasn't total garbage. But if it was, send it back in. And hopefully our pal Tim Falkowitz can uh, just say, hey, idiot, uh, read all the way through because you're probably not smart enough to remember. Uh, So do your homework, dummy. Uh, Okay, this might be one or two of the last questions we get to for right now. Um, Stuart Arith. Hey, Marshall, hope all is well with you and your wife. Uh, Let's see. What is the situation with Robert Wickens? Is it an actual hand control issue or is it a question of extraction from the car? I'm not sure if you've seen the Billy Monger documentary that followed his recovery after his horrendous crash and him getting back into a car with Carlin in the, uh, the British formula three series um, made adapted pedals and controls for Billy also said that the halo actually helped him uh, with getting out of the car uh, in the minimum time mandated by the FIA. Uh, Stewart then goes on to close by saying, does IndyCar have a minimum extraction time? Or is that down to the safety team of the track? I honestly don't understand the whole delay in at least getting him a car for at least a test day. Any idea? Uh, yes, IndyCar does have a minimum extraction time that everyone must meet. I am forgetting what it is, and I feel embarrassed because these are the kinds of things I should not forget. But yes, there is, and it, it, it's, it's quick. It's not a lot of farting around, so yes. Would say, would suggest this is one area that is unique to IndyCar, maybe a little bit more than a junior open-wheel car, one that uh, Billy would drive, for example. With the speeds that are done in IndyCar and the safety apparatuses used to safeguard and protect those drivers, there's more, Uh, and the cocooning... Not a word, I believe, but we'll just use it. The cocooning of an IndyCar driver in the cockpit is possibly the the highest level that I've seen in any open-wheel series. I realize that I haven't exactly stood over, you know, Volteri Botas getting out of his Mercedes with a stopwatch and judging every little aspect. But just saying and looking at drivers popping out of the car, etc., um, the head surround in particular and the wedging, if we're talking ovals, uh, of driver's helmet having minimum you know padding put in place to really kind of lock your helmet into place uh, because prior to the aero screen, at least, it would get buffeted and moved around. Uh, but even so, you just don't want a lot of space between the sides of your helmet and the head surround cushioning. You don't want to give your helmet much opportunity to have distance to accelerate before getting into the cushioning. That head surround is also thick and it fits right over the shoulders of the driver. Um, it's because of the thickness. It gets to maybe the bigger question here of just the extraction side. And we'll get to the other, the, maybe the main question here. Um, if you look at most drivers, IndyCar drivers, drivers, having to get out, unbuckling themselves, pulling the umbilical that comes into their suit that connects to the accelerometers, their earbuds, and just all the stuff. Um, Being able to unclip the locks for the head surround doesn't usually happen if we're talking rapid exit. So what they end up having to do is twist themselves kind of like a key in a lock, the way uh, the way that they sit, with how they're basically stuffed and jammed into the car, uh, it is like putting a key in a lock and turning it, and it's not coming out. And with the belts unbuckled and everything undone, the drivers, as you will probably have seen, then have to contort themselves sideways so that their uh, shoulder, left or right shoulder is almost hitting the uh, steering shaft, but they then have to turn sideways. Uh, Effectively, now the key can come out of the lock and then try and wriggle their way upwards to slide through the head surround. So the whole tightness and thickness and all this stuff, it's done for a reason, all good stuff. What it means is... If you don't have the ability to use all of your physical tools to get out in an instant, an Indy car might be a greater challenge than, say, for Billy diving out of his F3 car. So that's the first thing just to share an offer. Would a Robert Wickens be able to figure this out and do it? Yes, (laughs) that's not a guy to challenge because he will come up with a way to probably be faster than an IndyCar driver with every piece of control over their body. To close your question, and this is the, the wider one, covered it a couple times on the show before, but I'm happy to run through it again very quickly. The reason that Robert Wickens has not driven an IndyCar with hand controls is no one has spent the money for those hand controls to be purchased, created, developed uh, the systems? Uh, yeah, this is a. Not only are we talking the physical controls manipulated by his hands, but the actual systems controls, the interfaces to make these things work and work properly and all of these things not saying that there aren't things that would be hard to adapt it's not like this would be the first time hand controls would be added to a motor racing vehicle open wheel or otherwise so again there's no boundaries that have to be broken here but there would have to be something done for the first time on a dalara dw 12 chassis that is new work The issue here is money. Uh, Estimate I've heard, can't tell you if it's accurate or not. Estimate I've heard is this might be a couple million bucks uh, of time, energy, resources. I don't know the costs of the components themselves, be it steering wheel side or rest of the vehicle side, but um, it's one thing to just, have systems installed, it's another thing to then go test and go test. And for him to work up to get back to his championship caliber level, that's the thing that he hasn't been able to do or practice for a couple of years now. So again, if we're talking $2, 3000000 million, that's not the, boy, that's the most expensive steering wheel in the world. No, we're talking about going from zero with possessing none of the parts and pieces, having to buy them, install them, fit them, make everything work, software side, control devices, all the things. Outfit the vehicle, get the vehicle ready, and then you have the let's get you ready to go racing again side, and that is a costly endeavor that is going to take more than a couple, two or three test days. So it's that, Stuart, that has been the barrier probably mentioned this before I know this to be a fact Uh, it's not a rumor Um, when Robbie was with the team and they were Honda I know that Honda had expressed interest in trying to be part of that solution I would hope that Chevrolet and possibly Aero Electronics, knowing that they have done so many things, their relationship with team co-owner Sam Schmidt began with him driving a car uh, with controls and electronics and everything built into it by Arrow. Uh, Sam has been able to do this with Corvettes and such. Um, I just, again willingness I can't tell you if it's something they want to do or don't want to do. I don't know. So it's not a positive or negative statement. It's just me stating ignorance. But I'll just keep saying it yet again. The best story that isn't happening in IndyCar is the return of Robert Wickens. And a couple million bucks is by no means cheap, but knowing how much money gets spent on marketing and hopes that people will care... Uh, this is a story that everybody buys into, everybody loves, everybody wins. The only negative is if, after extensive testing, Robbie finds that either he just can't manipulate the car the same way that he used to before, and there's some sort of time deficit, performance deficit, that's the only thing that would be negative, is if after the entire exercise is done, he says, look, can I go out there and, and race? Sure. Am I going to be able to get the most out of the car like I did before and, and show everyone that I was a, a champion of the future? Maybe not. Again, I'm not saying that would be the case, but that's the only negative I can think of. Of course, you could say, what if he crashes? What if he gets more hurt? Again, it's that's a risk that everyone's willing to uh, take. Uh, whether they have injuries coming in or don't, we know Robbie wants to race. We know Robbie wants to be on the grid at St. Pete in March. Uh, So he's ready and willing. Need a coalition of the willing, Stuart. All right, getting uh, back to business here a little later than expected, but uh, topped up my coffee a wee bit. We're going to get this done. Uh, We're going to go next to it makes sense 72 from Reddit says, Hey Marshall, we know that there's a need for more IndyCar ovals. The nineties, the original IRL proposed an oval at the Cleveland airport, which sounded silly at the time, but now is something like that, a possibility to add much needed ovals to the schedule. I love the idea because it's insane, not insane. Just so far out of left field that, I mean, I'd be all for it because it's strange It would be the equivalent of a street race on an oval, meaning city center, non-purpose built track. And to my knowledge, I'm trying to struggle to think of a oval like this, something done in a city uh, where folks can show up and see something totally different, unique than they normally would. Uh, meaning non-racing fans, like, whoa, this thing is here. What is this? It's at the airport? Sure, let's go check it out. Love the idea, but I think this would be a bit of a odd callback to a possibility simply because we know that there are so many purpose-built ovals throughout the country that are currently drastically underserved in terms of major events and fans turning up. So... My two cents here would be love the idea, can't see it happening, would rather see IndyCar, speak with NASCAR, uh, Speedway group, whomever that happens to own Purpose Bill at Ovals, and get some business done. Get some some cool either let's go back to a place we once loved or fans seem to be vaguely interested in us or go someplace new, but uh, I would not want to see IndyCar go and do something like this on a uh, airport oval, knowing that there are purpose-built tracks that could use the revenue. And who knows? Uh, wacky, but I love it. So yeah, um, old IRL ideas coming back here. This is a very 2020 thing. Uh, let's go to, I need a name, please from Reddit, Uh, If the over-under for Dale Coyne Racing to have uh, confirmed lineup for two full cars is February 1st, 2021, a little over a month away from St. Pete weekend, would you bet the over or the under? See, this is where uh, my lack of betting knowledge just is drastically exposed. So the over would be the high odds, is it? And the under would be the negative, the bad odds? I think coin is going to have his drivers confirmed before February 1st. So you're going to have to tell me whether I just took the over or under because my brain doesn't really compute this stuff. Like when I watch the UFC fights uh, and they have the odds next to the driver's name on the screen and it has a negative 200 and they thankfully put the thing next to them saying it's favored. Uh, that's the favored fighter. um, Maybe that leads me to believe that I need to take the over because if the favored is over is the favored and that would be after February 1st, then maybe the under would be before. Did I just confuse myself or all of you or both? I don't know. Uh, before February 1st, you tell me which one I should respond to in the over and under. And if anyone really, uh, feels the need to educate me on these things so I can answer them without sounding like a, a buffoon next time. I wouldn't argue against it. Hrishi uh, hey, Despond, hey, pal, by the way, thought of you this week while my wife and I were at the hospital on Monday uh, getting her blood draw ahead of Tuesday's chemo, and there was a, I think, about a eight- or nine-year-old little boy in the chair across from us getting some sort of blood sample taken and his name happened to be Hrishi as well and since your first name like my first name is not one that I hear called out in public on a regular basis uh, I heard him being called and looked over and nice kid big smile gave him a big smile back and said well look at that uh we got a fine reason for me to connect back to our weekend in indycar show with you hrishi and the questions you've been sending in uh you say hello mp in the spirit of thanksgiving who or what from the indycar world are you most thankful for the season this best you miss pruitt and the cats wishing you a happy thanksgiving uh let's see you add hashtag me personally i know we're all thankful for roger penske and his leadership and deep pockets in guiding the series through this year but I'm also thankful for all the track and safety workers who helped make the season possible. They are the unsung heroes of racing. Amen to all that and above. So I'll give you an answer on who are a couple things on who and what I'm most thankful for, for talking about IndyCar in the 2020 season. Y'all come to mind because, as I've told you plenty of times, Haven't been able to attend the races this year for reasons I think most of you know, and so on top of the normal talking to drivers and team owners and all that that I do, y'all honestly are the most I guess frequent participants in what I do in IndyCar on a weekly basis. So I am genuinely thankful for y'all. I think I express that kind of every episode, so that's uh I don't know, not the first time you're hearing it, but. I really do mean it like this. This is something that I just love doing. So I'm very thankful for y'all. Little additional piece of color to this. I mean, the show's really continuing to grow and grow and grow. And based on the volume of your questions that come in each week, out of necessity, we have spun this out into two episodes every week for a couple months now. So... That's why I'm so thankful because so many of you are engaging and participating. Would say if we're, we're sticking the general IndyCar world to answer the question here, Hrishi, um with someone other than y'all, it might go in a direction, since you've already named Roger Penske, uh, track and safety workers and such. I would say Paul Fanner. I would say the founder and owner of Racer Magazine a uh, big part of the IndyCar world as well. Um, I would say racer's Paul Fanner is the one I'm probably most thankful for if we're identifying someone that y'all might not expect. And that's because with COVID having hit I think just about everybody this year uh financially with you know whether it's in your paycheck whether it's losing a paycheck, whatever it is, we know that the world, uh, more in some places than others, has been ravaged by the effects of this pandemic. And without going into any unnecessary details, some of the hardest hit in the world of racing have been in the form of those who rely on advertising advertising to survive and with that known a lot of advertisers the moment the pandemic hit shutdown started happening everything we've seen play out said hey you know that six-month ad campaign that we signed up to do on your magazine website newspaper radio show whatever um that six months is over today instead of what the six month span was meant to be because we have to pull back on everything because we don't know how hard we're going to be hit by the financial effects. And I can just tell you that racer was no different and you want to talk about someone. I mean, Paul's, Paul's been doing this for a long time. If there was a, a, opportunity to ride into the sunset and say, all right, man, this is way too much. I'm out. This would have been it. And instead, Paul with uh, a wife, two college age daughters, daughters just off to college. um, You know, he's at a point in time where (laughs) this, he could have just said farewell and given himself a massive break and just enjoyed life without nothing but headaches instead. And this is the racer mindset. One that certainly befits the name of the institution, but also the type of person and character in our sport that I think so many of us love and respond to the hardcore racers, uh, Paul dug in and I'd be lying if I said there weren't some real scary moments this year. Where I'm looking around the entire uh, house, trying to think about genuinely what can I sell in order to pay rent uh, on this? To to that lease gets covered. The medical expenses, like I truly might have to just start liquidating most of my slash our significant uh, assets uh, if things go in the wrong direction here. And that was a very real thing and it was a very real thing for a while. And I can just say Rishi this is not a plug this is not BS this is just straight up appreciation, admiration and thanks. Uh Paul who refuses to be defeated refused to be defeated and the amount of work he's put in to try and recover from all of the hardships being felt to keep us here and all of us working and all of us able to pay our various bills and not have to suffer too many sleepless nights worrying about whether our individual financial worlds are going to collapse. I'd say that's the thing that I'm most thankful for because since I don't come from wealth, My wife doesn't come from wealth. We don't have family members or otherwise saying, here's millions, don't worry about a thing. Um, I'm sure like many of you, if not most of you, whomever you work for or wherever you work is the the security blanket for you being able to look after yourselves in your life. And I know that a lot of us, again, have dealt with uh, cutbacks, restrictions, you name it, whatever, uh, so I have to give all my thanks here, Harishi, to Paul because without him and his tireless efforts to look after all of us and provide that security for us, this could have been really bad. So that's where I'm going to go there. Um, last question above the cut line here from Tim Falkowitz goes to our pal Ben Cohen. Hey, Ben. this is MP, hope you and your lovely bride have a great Thanksgiving. We're going to. Uh, I went and picked up what we're going to be having tomorrow. And I'll tell you, it looks really good. Uh, it looks really good. My wife, by the way, is like, hey, just we need to set a time, need to set a time to uh, get things going because there's going to be a lot of spice and flavor and whatnot that needs to be added to some things before they're cooked. So, uh, yeah, down home Thanksgiving, coming right up. Uh, says this IndyCar fan very thankful for the coverage of the sport you provide and the content you create for us. Well, that's sweet, man. Uh, with that being said, uh, a time-relevant question for the week. If you had to match up IndyCar drivers as Thanksgiving dishes, what would they be? The easiest choice would be Dixon as the turkey, the stable uh, staple of the meal that you can always depend on. Uh, cheers, and have a very happy Thanksgiving. All right, we are turning drivers into Thanksgiving items. All right. That's a good one, Ben. Thank you. Thank you, my friend. And I hope you and everyone uh, have an awesome Thanksgiving tomorrow, or uh, to be honest, I hope I can get this posted tonight. If not, uh, it might be Friday, or if I can sneak out, I might post it quickly uh, tomorrow. I don't know, but uh, either have a great Thanksgiving, or I hope your Thanksgiving was awesome. I think I forgot to mention that at the beginning because my head is just a bowl of murky things. It doesn't always work well. Uh, Okay, Um, now when I think turkey, who's a turkey? Uh, I also think of a joker, and who would put you to sleep too, right? Who's got that L-tryptophan, either in their personality or voice? Who? uh, I'm not going to do that because I'm just going to make probably those who hate me hate me even more. Um, yeah, it's a good call, uh, but you know, or is Dixon the carving knife Ben? right? Uh, that, that might be, that's certainly, I would believe a staple of, of Thanksgiving, uh, unless y'all are accustomed to just reaching over and ripping whatever you want off the bird. Um, so maybe Dixon's the carving knife. Ooh, yeah, that's a possibility. I mean, wouldn't. Wouldn't power be the turkey? Yeah, that guy's kind of a turkey, right? Plus, you know, he can get going on some topics and go and go and go. And you're like, wow, and your brain kind of starts shutting off and your eyes get a little heavy. I think power might be the turkey, but more in a joking way. Uh, Now, see, here's the thing. I mean, not everybody has the same stuff for Thanksgiving. I know some of the traditional items, you know, stuffing uh, or as my wife calls it and makes fun of me for calling it stuffing, the dressing, um, let's see, kind of earthy, bready, savory. Who would that be? Uh, man, I don't know. I'm trying to, would that be Connor Daly? Yeah, that'd be Connor Daly. Sure it would. Connor's the stuffing. What else? Uh, now again, I'm just trying to, remember because just be honest growing up as a white kid in a white household i know that we had what you might call a quote traditional thanksgiving i'd realize there's no such thing as traditional because not everybody has the same thing so those traditions carry from uh, household to household um what else uh i mean i know mac and cheese is one that not necessarily something that I grew up having, but that's a common thing now. Um, some sort of mixed vegetables, right? Or yeah, something like that. Who would be the mixed vegetables? <sighs> Jack Harvey, right? Our, our vegan driver, the healthiest thing possible. Uh, what else? I can't believe I'm kind of struggling here, but the real, the reality is, you know, my wife and I have recently had a soul food Thanksgiving. We've had a, a variety of uh, different f- angles on things. So I'm going to do this traditional American Thanksgiving and see what it pulls up. Cause I'm, I'm genuinely kind of forgetting cranberry sauce. Ooh, yeah. Yeah. I'll just say, That's not something that, um, uh, has been part of our Christmas, uh, Thanksgiving. And I believe when I mentioned that as something that was a known, uh, kind of common thing, my wife looked at me like, nah, (laughs) that's (laughs) y'all. That's not us. Uh, what else? Pumpkin pie. No, there's, uh, no, um, sweet potato pie. Now. There's that for sure? Um, I'm just trying to come up with some things here that I'm so I, I really doubt that there's anybody in the IndyCar series going with uh sweet potato pie for sure. Um, what rolls like some sort of dinner rolls, something like that? Uh, who would be dinner rolls? That's a hundred percent Simon Pagano, the French bread uh, that's you know that that is their their lifeblood so that's for sure what's the what's the other thing mashed potatoes right uh where, who would that be that'd be graham ray hall right super american i mean that that is super american what else um is that it maybe i'm, I'm looking here and seeing things like green bean casserole. What the hell is that? I have no idea. <laughs> ah, no idea. Um yeah. Here's the thing. And I, I appreciate the question, Ben. As usual, this is just yet another failure on my part in the show. Um it's just my wife and I. It's just two of us. We don't have kids. We don't have uh any family members within a 6-hour drive. Um, and so more often than not, at least over the last couple of years where, you know, we, we've kind of been more isolated due to what we've been dealing with. It's just been a little bit of freewheeling. So this year it's a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Uh, we've incorporated a little bit of Italian into it. Uh, she found an Italian restaurant, um, that she wanted to try. So we've got a little bit of uh something new or different there. Um, Last year, as I mentioned, uh, it was a soul food uh, Thanksgiving. So, you know, we just kind of make it up as we go. And she has often prepared in years past what would be described as a Southern Thanksgiving, as a uh, a, a child of Alabama. Um, her leanings and sensibilities, like I said, don't call it stuffing. It's called dressing, you idiot. Um, yeah, so... Yeah, I don't know if I answered your question properly, Ben, but I appreciate you asking it. Uh, let's do this. Going to climb into a couple of overtime questions and knowing that this is already a long episode, maybe it will help you kill some time here over the holidays. Who knows? Um, just going to grab a couple, and there are a couple of long ones, but hey, those are kind of sort of perfect uh, for the overtime here. Um, a couple, I might be able to fire away quickly. Uh, Mike Lengel, any word about what series are running with IndyCar Nashville? I believe Mike, I've seen both Trans Am and what I will always call world challenge announced alongside. I'm forgetting whether the road to Indy was named as, uh, something that will be part of it. So that's my failure right there. Um, KP, Green Gecko 119 says, I feel we'd be remiss to not share favorite and odd Thanksgiving traditions. Says, Miss KP and I don't much like turkey, so usually we find a different sort of fowl. This year we'll be having roast duck. Eh, That's very interesting there, KP. Uh, Matt Philpott says, Marshall, the people need to know the dark meat of a turkey is the best, right? Yes, there is. That is not even a there's not even anything to discuss here, and that's pretty much across all birds. Uh, Dark meat is, yes, Uh, if someone could genetically engineer uh, chicken, turkey, whatever, to be all dark meat, I mean, we might have the world's greatest bird. It might become the new American symbol. Yeah, forget the eagles, whatever. Dark meat, turkey, and chicken, that's a symbol for America right there. Uh, Horatio Frey and George O'Donnell, you sent in just some really sweet things. Horatio, you said, no question. Just a huge thanks for all the content you continue to put out. It's my pleasure. Horatio I have a little bit of OCD and I'm a service dog and like to work. So, you know, uh, that's kind of all I know how to do. Uh, George, no question. You say just thanks for answering my question last week. Hope you and Shabrell have a lovely Thanksgiving. Keeping you both in my prayers. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Robbie Bergerin. Hey, Marshall, Ryan Briscoe seemed like a guy whose career should have been longer in IndyCar. Why wasn't he as successful at Ganassi as he was at Penske, in your opinion? Well, thank you, Robbie, and I also appreciate you asking for this in my opinion compared to someone else's opinion. I don't know if the Ganassi team at the time Ryan was there last. Um, was really geared to... Get the best out of its non-Dixon drivers. Uh, When they expanded to four cars, Charlie Kimball, Graham Rahal. I know that at least in some feedback that I had on the driver side, or from the driver's side, that it felt like the B team. Not saying it was the B team, but impressions were given that they felt like wasn't necessarily in the same fighting position as the A team. I know that hearing feedback from the A-team, Robbie, uh, they said that's complete nonsense, and no. And you can point to a lot of things, a lot of reasons why things weren't successful and not something you could really blame the team for. Um, I, I can't really give you a great answer on Ryan because there was a point for sure, and I think for many years, Referring back to his time at Penske, where he was really sharp end of not just career but talent and output, and there's something there, really something there that was impressive. Um, at least mid two thousand mid twenty tens ish, um, just seemed to be at a place where. I don't know what it was. Not every driver is the same every year. I know that's a dumb thing to say because it applies to everyone, humans in general, but uh, also athletes. It's very rare where an athlete is the same consistent level of excellence every year. Sometimes there's a dip, and it just felt like Ryan, who was still more than capable, was just not the everyone fear, uh, Briscoe, as we once did, type character. He moved over to the Ford GT program. Um, Really seemed like there were uh, a number of moments where the guy was just on fire. Got the team's first win with Ford, right? Brought home Ford's first victory at Monterey in, I think it was May of 2016. Uh, Amazing performance. He and Richard Westbrook. uh, And there were more like that. Um, Just haven't honestly had a chance to sit down and have a a good long conversation with him uh, about such things. So that's why I don't have a whole lot that I can offer that I would say is beyond just general observations and and little things that have stuck in the back of my head. Um, It's often the hallmark of most drivers that we see in whatever sport that last a good long while, Robbie, the vast majority are very good and deliver high quality for many, many years. Very few actually become champions. Could be misfortune, could be a lot of things, but the Ryan Briscoe story in general is one that we probably have to say isn't too uncommon. Guy who's had a bunch of great drives, had a number of wins, done a lot of very quality things and had a long career, but only a small handful of drivers get to be champions one time, two times to be the defining, you know, handful of their era. And Ryan, I think will be remembered as someone who got close to that peak, but is more on the fringes a little bit. So if we take that forward, it might not be a total surprise that he wasn't, you know, beating up Dixon on his return to ganassi and really waging uh you know an equally competitive campaign Uh, but the heart of it and as to why something that uh, i look forward to talking to him about and uh, maybe there are some underlying things that i'm just unaware of uh daniel summerskill hey daniel says resubmission says if money and planning issues and restrictions weren't an issue what track of yesteryear would you most want to return to indycar says hashtag me personally with the increasing number of drivers from the lands down under i would really like surface paradise to come back to the series i think that's just the permanent winning answer daniel every driver who's been there every crew member team owner you name it they all want to be back uh the Many years I was able to uh, attend surfers. I mean, it, it stays with you. It's so beautiful, duh, but the people, right? It's just fun. Uh, just It's a bigger party than I've ever seen at any race I've attended other than the Indy 500, and that's pretty amazing, I would say. Uh, Ian Keyworth says, hey, about four weeks ago you asked if I knew if, uh, IndyCar... Any plans for a winter eye racing official season to keep us going? Uh, I've heard nothing, Ian, to suggest that it's coming. Uh, next time I check in, though, I will ask again to see if anything has changed. Uh, Jeremiah Morrell. Hey, Jeremiah. Uh, can you share the ways team search for sponsors? Often you will see cars get them uh, the week of the Indy 500 after having empty side pods all month. Are these usually so, uh, team source sponsors, or are they packaged uh, packages put together by third parties and shopped to the teams? Uh, perhaps you could share some of your own experiences from the team management days, and also saying how would adding LED panels to the cars makes sponsors more happy with their investments. I mean, duh, that that's certainly the most obvious part. When we're if we just stick to the five hundred part, and since this is overtime, Jeremiah, I'm going to cr- try and keep this one brief. When it comes to the 500, yes, indeed. Uh, The teams that don't have much tend to have a lot of calls come in, and it's usually inbound inquiries compared to outbound stuff. Hey, you're in the field. Uh, You don't have a lot on your car. What would it take to be there? And it's kind of sort of perfect timing, right? Uh, If a team has practiced for however many days, and qualified and their car is not replete with sponsorship you can assume that they're a bit in need and probably willing to deal so when you do get those sponsors that come in it's rarely a fortune 100 company but yeah more often than not it is uh through a dm through a phone call uh sometimes it's the series right hey we've had a Person or a company call and say they want to do something on a car um you know uh this team or these three or four teams whatever it might be these entries uh, appear to be a bit bare so we'll pass their contact info on to those teams and then it's up to them to try and work something out so yeah um i think i remember in 97 or 98 at the 500 there was a gent i don't remember his name of his company, um, but just uh, had a a bronze badge, got into Gasoline Alley, and went around and kind of knocked door-to-door. And it must have been 98 because we were broke as can be. And he said, hi, my name is so-and-so. I have a such-and-such company. I'll have to look. It was just a small service company that he ran uh, by himself, I think. And he said, every year I... Search for a team to work with uh, at the five hundred. I have almost. I think he said like I have five hundred dollars to spend. I know that it only was going to get me the tiniest of stickers. Uh, most teams say no, thank you for that amount. You know it's not worth the the hassle or effort. Uh, but I still knock on every door until I find someone who says yes. And I said hello, yes. <laughs> and uh, I don't remember where we put it, Jeremiah. Uh, I'll. Try and dig up some photos of the car from the 98 race and see if I can not only find it, but uh, zoom in enough and maybe have it not be pixelated enough so I can tell you what it was. But some of those things are pretty cool. Uh, In 98, we were the team that had, we were the team that made the news for qualifying second, but had effectively no sponsorship on the car. And so back when teams had dedicated telephones not mobile phones telephones connected to the wall in their garages and there was a directory kept by the speedway on the Foyt team is in these garages and their direct phone number in the garage is one two three four five six seven it was a known type thing and or easy thing for someone to call into the speedway and then get directed straight to whatever team. And again, it wasn't something that fans did, or I think really knew about, but uh, with that directory and that easy connection, I sat right in front of that phone and answered it a ton and no joke through that old school thing in 98 folks had mobile phones, not a lot of people, but uh I think I might have had my first by then, maybe ninety nine anyway, somewhere in that ninety-eight, ninety-nine time frame I, I have my first cell phone. But um this is a case where thanks to that phone and that system, Jeremiah, and our story going vaguely national, at least in you know, sporting news type stuff, uh that phone probably helped deliver a quarter million dollars in sponsorship maybe a little bit more um after qualifying so that was pretty amazing And then the last thing to mention here on the series although it did not come to pass and i think i might have mentioned this before uh that kind of terrible godzilla movie starring ferris bueller uh matthew broderick and some other folks who i don't really remember uh, Although a buddy of mine was in that um I think he was one of the helicopter pilots flying through the buildings and such uh chasing or getting away from Godzilla. Anyways, uh, apparently whatever company made that movie had reached out to the speedway to inquire about doing a sponsorship deal for the 500 and putting all kinds of giant branding on the sides of things. And, The premise of the advertising, and this is the wacky thing, Jeremiah, was the size of Godzilla. And so for what we were told about, hey, they have an interest in doing this, and we're going to try and see if we can get some of that uh, sponsorship to you, it was like the side of the turn to suites. They wanted to put... um, I don't know what it would have been, but you know think of a uh, billboard on the highway or whatever type size graphics they wanted to put that on say the side of the turn two suites and have like Godzilla's leg or a portion of his leg and some sort of scale you know I don't know if it was a ruler or whatever but the whole premise was, this is how big Godzilla's leg is, this is how big Godzilla's tail is, his, this, his right? And this is a PG show, so and I'm sure that that's all they're trying to do uh, is just show the parts that you could readily see, but that was the whole thing, like trying to wow potential moviegoers with a reboot of Godzilla. Um, by showing you how big parts of him happen to be so I don't know how we would have done that on an IndyCar uh, you know like this is his toenail is the size of a Delara IR 97 or whatever the hell it was called uh, but yeah it didn't come to pass uh, but we were slightly bemused trying to figure out how on earth we would meet this size-based movie promotion thing. So, yeah, there you go. Um going to get to the last two questions here. One from Momo hater. Uh, Marshall, all the best to you and your wife. Thank you, thank you. I continue to pray for the healing of the, to the both of you. Thank you. Uh, I am healed, by the way. Um, My question may or may not not be deeper than you've discussed in the past or uh, really feel like getting into. No, we love discussing things that are deep. Uh, You mentioned the need for equality and finding ways to make the Indicarpatic more representative of the population as a whole. Uh, My first thought, do minorities, including gender, just as an aside here, referring to a group of people as minorities, as the inverse of majorities, let's leave that in the past, right? Uh referring to people by the percentage of the population they withhold? Eh it's a little little not human. Uh my first thought. Um do they have the same desire for motorsports? Therefore is there a problem of opportunity for them, or is their desire less than a Caucasian male, therefore less migrate to the upper forms of motorsports? Um, my opinion is that there is a similar desire, but not equitable opportunity. Uh, so this would lead me to believe that there are those in the paddock or ownership that are racist, chauvinistic, or mildly ignorant. Do you agree? Um, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, yes. There are racists in the paddock. I know of them, uh, have spoken with them, are aware of them. There are chauvinists. There are, uh, mildly ignorant folks. I would say if you walk into your church on Sunday, all three of those things will be found, or you walk into your local grocery store or wherever else. So the three negative mindsets, character traits, et cetera, that are uh, described here would just say that they certainly aren't unique to motor racing. If what I've written recently Has any kind of theme to it? It's that, as my friend Lynn St. James likes to say, uh, in order to be it, you've got to see it, or some derivation of that. And can I tell you that motor racing was as popular among the area and people that my wife grew up as a black girl in the projects uh, of Alabama? compared to this white kid growing up in middle class whatever in northern california absolutely not absolute difference no question but did she by chance and her brothers happen to watch some nascar and some indycar and whatever and uh, when they were growing up they absolutely did so there is a possibility that motor racing is not Uh, a a totally foreign concept to those where whether it's gender or whichever ethnic group uh, it is not something that has been traditionally participated in or or has not been traditionally super popular and passed down from generation to generation as something that mom or dad loves and they get the kids involved in Uh, i just share that we've seen some pretty amazing examples Uh, Probably mentioned Tiger Woods and how prior to Tiger, it's not as if there were zero black golfers, but golfing among the black community absolutely took off and Asian community. And I mean, he was a person who broke barriers in terms of acceptance, but also paved that all-important path that interested A lot of folks who would have never considered golf as a place to uh, something they might want to do, but also as a place where they might be accepted. Open the door to new arena to try. Lay down the foundation that although you, whatever you might be, uh, have not been historically represented. Well, here's big representation. And so, Come on, come one, come all. Let's do it. We'll throw the Williams sisters in the last 20 years in tennis in the same exact way. Hey, (laughs) uh, whether it's Venus or Serena, I mean, these two have helped. They weren't the first, but these two are absolute huge inspirations for a lot of change in tennis where a lot of, black, brown, yellow, you name whatever color girls that were not considering tennis as a place to participate in sports or whether they might be welcome. We've put that to rest. That change has happened over the last 20 years and dang it, it's awesome. Would just apply this to this topic and I think it's what I've tried to do with a lot of what I've written over the last however long, which is the Lewis Hamilton's of the world represent opportunity and acceptance in a place where traditionally there hasn't been. And so that's the power of Lewis Hamilton. Hopefully that's not going to change things tomorrow, but the goal, if we follow the Tiger Woods example, the Williams sisters and such is three, five, ten, twenty 20 years, we hope that formula one does look more like Lewis than not like Lewis, because that's a more accurate reflection of the world around us. Um, this is the same thing here and we're talking women. Now we've had women racing in IndyCar. We just haven't had enough. And it's been a while since we, a while since we've had a, full-time driver. Uh, We have not had a full-time black driver since 2002. Um, Name some other ethnicities that have or have not been represented a little bit, sometime part-time, you name it. You know, this isn't about tokenism. It's just, hey, not everyone looks at every sport and says, yeah, that's for me. Uh, Or I would have ever thought to have tried it, to try it. So I think that might be at the heart of what I'm trying to get at here is with more women racing and involved uh, in the cars on pit lane, timing stand, ownership, whatever, drivers of color, uh, crew members and whatnot of color, of whichever awesome ethnic backgrounds. These are just things where in order to... Be it, you've got to see it. This is where I'm just hoping we have our Tiger Woods, Williams, sisters, whomevers that help create a, a similar dynamic in IndyCar, in IMSA, in NASCAR, in everywhere, uh, where we're not just talking about the, that one person. The NHRA, I think, is about the only series that really jumps out where you go, hey, there's a lot of women. They've kicked a lot of ass and there are drivers of color. There are drivers of non-color. There's a drivers of maleness and non-maleness. There's all kinds of people and they're excellent. And we don't so much talk about lack of representation. That's the thing that I hope for Momo hater from Reddit. Um, And I know that not everybody hopes for these things. And I, I, continue to pray for them because it's strange for me to work in a place where we all for the most part look the same it's just not the world that i grew up in and so therefore the area that i work in and have worked in has just always felt odd in that capacity so yeah there's that uh you add one more part here says uh so you said do i agree about the chauvinistic the this and the that yeah there are, there are all those things there Um, if you look at the average age of most team owners, it's old, um, would say that as we hopefully have more owners come in younger owners, um, some of these tropes of the past will go away. Think about Michael Shank, right? Uh, this is a guy who's run all female team, uh, an all female team in IMSA before that, uh, championing Catherine leg in the car. This is a guy who, you know, uh generally younger than pretty much all the team owners the vast majority of the team owners and he's been about who can i find that is the best for the job and has gone and brought them into his team um you might hear a number of team owners say that oh we just want to get the best person we're only focused on the best person for the job yeah I'm sure that that is true from a wanting to have the best, but how do you define the best? Where do you look for the best? And is it a narrow scope that kind of looks the same and is all from the same gender? Well, then you're not indeed looking for the best. You've pre-selected what you believe is the best and search in that area. Uh, So again, it's just some evolving mindsets that you hope to happen within those who aren't particularly evolved in that capacity or we have some new ownership uh, blood come in and they bring those modernized ways of thinking with them. Uh, let's see. You close by saying, if, uh, if yes, does the race for equality and change, um, is it more about educating those within the paddock or providing opportunity for minorities or both? Um, that's a really hard one to answer because I have to see more of what they do. I've heard about a lot of things that they plan to do. I've been told to look out for things that they're going to do, and I'm continuing to wait for those things to manifest. Um, I know that there is an underlying goal to bring drivers of color and women racers into the open-wheel world here that I am aware of changing minds, educating within the paddock, and so on. I think that might be more than I would expect from the Race for Equality and Change program. Um you have to have folks who want to modernize their ways to receive uh that education. We've all, maybe ourselves as well, been in situations where someone's tried to tell us the thing that must happen, that they must do. And if we're just not open to it or not willing to hear it at that point, we tune it out. So I don't think Roger Penske or anyone else can tell a team owner uh, what they should do um, or you know what would be in their best interest. I think it's just going to be open uh, for, hopefully, some folks to realize that, you know, uh, let's be inclusive. Because this narrow scope of what a race car driver can be, both by ethnicity or gender, uh, we got to let it go. We just got to let it go. Um, And you also close here by saying, Momo hater eats, eats, or equals, hater of irritating, ignorant, pot-stirring people. Um, Well, there you go. Uh, Although I think you just stirred the pot a little bit. Uh, We're going to close here with Eater uh, Flozada says, Hey, did you see Sebastian Vettel's helmet for the Turkish Grand Prix instead of the German flag? It had a rainbow across it faded from white to black. It was decorated with people from different cultures and backgrounds at the bottom. So my question is apart from Jerry Hildebrand at the Indy 500 this year, which IndyCar driver or drivers might use a helmet design supporting diversity or just show openly their support to the cause it says on a less serious note, which driver from the series, uh, Had your favorite helmet design in 2020. Oh, boy. All right. Well, let's see here. Um, I mean, so we saw that JR did it, to your point. There were 33 drivers, 33 opportunities. Uh, One of those 33 felt compelled to do something. Um. JR being a bit of a a wild card, right? He's known for being self-possessed, his own man. No one's going to tell him what to do. He also brings his sponsorship with him to the team. So he is in a position of power and strength. And his sponsor, Salesforce, happens to be a pretty open and and thoughtful place. Uh, That was a perfect fit for him, exactly who I know him to be. Some of the other teams... Uh, Some of the other drivers, maybe not in positions of power or comfort to do such a thing. Uh, I know some teams don't really want to see that or hear that. And uh, the culture is not a place that would be accepting of such. Then you have some drivers who fear that, you know, they might, as Momo Hader mentioned, stir the pot. Not something you want to do either in a contract year or just feeling a bit exposed Um, with so many questions about financial stability and so on and so forth, no rocking of the boats, uh, then you just have some folks who don't know and don't care. So I, that's why I'm struggling to say who would be the second, you know, would a Colton Herta Pato award, some of the younger generation be likely to do that. Alex Pelot, um, you know, Zach Veach. Some of those who didn't, but could I see them if they felt uh, a willingness to do so? Yeah. Um, I mean, I would lean maybe towards Colton uh, as the best uh, chance, knowing that he and his team co-owner, uh, George Steinbrenner, I mean, they're very thoughtful people, uh, caring, giving people, and seem to be attuned to the happenings of the world, both positive and negative, maybe more than most. Uh, and I'm not saying others don't feel or see the same thing, but uh, call to action to try and make a statement. Yeah. Um, I'd probably put my money on Colton as being the one to say, Hey, you know what? Whether it is uh, rainbows, black, white, diversity, whatever it is, uh, he just strikes me as someone who might uh, feel compelled at some point in time and yeah you know everybody's got their thing you know some folks are are more interested in doing charitable things that support animals than humans Uh, some people are more interested in things that support uh, military and war fighters than animals some people are there's everybody has their own cause or of those that do they'll have their own causes and the things that are important to them And I can't find fault with those who aren't compelled to step up and and stand out for diversity and inclusion and all those things. That's their proverbial journey in life, right? Uh, If they were to, that'd be great. You know, more people, the more help. But uh, I am impressed by the amount of people who try and do good things in IndyCar, we just don't have a lot of folks that are willing to stand up on something that they know is going to have a blowback from probably a lot of people who enjoy the sport and don't really want to see such messages included in it. It's not saying that there are a lot of people who hate the idea of diversity or representation. Just we see it anytime someone makes a statement. Hell, any t- <laughs> if you want to read the most negative Reviews of this show, uh, it will be after I have mentioned anything that had anything to do with politics. And it wasn't necessarily because of whatever I had to say about politics. It's because I mentioned politics and therefore don't be that guy. Just be one dimensional. Do the thing that's entertaining and just stay entertaining. Don't mention anything that could be polarizing and have one side pitted against another side. Don't even talk about any of that. So this would certainly be a case where you do something on your helmet that says, Hey, I'm all for something that is probably going to have folks going, wait a minute. That's not sports. Uh, That's not entertainment. You're going to get a little bit of pushback. Charity work gets a bit of a pass because that's doing good things that might not everyone might not agree with uh yeah it's a little bit of a landmine so as someone who's stepped on that plenty of times i can understand why jerry hildebrand was one of 33 to do it so hey that's our show i don't really have a favorite from 2020 beyond max chilton's uh, indy 500 helmet which i think is everybody's favorite helmet because it was the best thing ever but um that's our show and yeah this is a longer one But, hey, it's a holiday week, and hopefully you'll give me a pass. I really didn't want to have to do two. So thank you for listening. Hope you have an awesome Thanksgiving or had based on when this goes up. I am Marshall Pruitt. This is our Week in IndyCar brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com, and Bell Racing Helmets, USA.